0: All right. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles tonight and open them together to our study of the book of Ephesians. Back in Ephesians tonight, it's kind of a catch what we can when we're here because our evening service sometimes takes the way in which we don't have evening service on one night or another. And we have prayer night and other things happen during the, the course of our ministry life here at the church, so we're here as we can, and we're back in Ephesians tonight. And I want to begin tonight by just reading our text for us. We'll be focusing our attention on chapter 1, verses 15 through the first part of verse 19, and uh, here is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? If you and I, as we think about this text, if we were to attach a label to all of the previous verses that we've already studied in this passage, particularly verses 3-14, through which we understand from our own study and when you read, anyone who understands the Scriptures, at least this portion understands that this is just one long sentence in the original language that the Apostle Paul was writing. He so wrapped up in the majesty of what God has done for us, both Father, Son, and Spirit. He almost couldn't even put his, the, the quill down to stop writing and put a punctuation mark anywhere, and the economy of parchment in which they were writing, that really wasn't available like we have it but it's one sentence in the original language. If we were to label it with one word that would describe the overall character of God throughout those verses, what would that word be? What comes to your mind? I I believe a good word that describes that entire section is the word sovereign, or the word sovereignty if you prefer that. Because it is clear from those verses that God is sovereign over all things. It is clear from the very output of verse 3 that it is God Himself who has blessed us by being united with Jesus Christ, and all of that was in the mind of God before He ever created anything. And so it is clear from verse 3 all the way through verse 14 that God is is sovereign over all things, and that is particularly true when it comes to the salvation of his own people. We can certainly talk about all the areas in which God is sovereign in his creation to create all things and the things in which he has made for us to enjoy. My wife and I had the opportunity last week to be out at West at one of the national parks in our country, and the, the majesty of the mountains and the beauty of it all certainly spoke to the grandeur of the creative power of God and all that He has done and His sovereignty over it all. And yet, even more than that, on top of all that is the reality of His sovereignty and salvation for His own people. I was reminded this week of the Westminster shorter catechism which asks certain questions about doctrine and then has answers for that and it's a good thing to if you have kids to take your children through the westminster shorter catechism not because it's necessarily shorter in by way of all the questions it asks but shorter by way of the answers that it gives are not fully flushed out like it would be in the longer one but it's a good thing to go through and the second question i believe it is maybe it's the seventh question in in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this. What are the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? And the answer to that question in the catechism is given this way. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now that is speaking of the very real actuality of God being sovereign. God's decrees are His eternal purpose, the the purpose of God in the annals of eternity past in which we know about here in verses 3-14, through which He, according to His own counsel and His own will, whereby for His own glory He ordains whatever comes to pass. So God has it planned and God works it out in time all according to His counsel, all according to His perfect character for His own glory. That is certainly speaking of His sovereignty. And upon reading our text for tonight in verses 15 and following down through verse 19, it ought to raise the question in our minds, at least, if we are discerning people, and we learn tonight that we need to be discerning as we talked about that earlier, and we ought to be scrutinizing everything we hear according to the truth that we hear, it ought to raise a question in our minds then concerning the sovereignty of God. And the question is this, since God is sovereign over all things, the word of God clearly declares that. Verses 3 through 14 clearly show us that. Since God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, then why is the Apostle Paul saying these words that he says in verses 15 through 17 and therefore again in verse 18 through 19? For this reason, in other words, In light of the sovereignty of God in verses 3-14, through in light of all that I just told you about what God has done and foreordained to come to pass through His will, through the work of the Son, through the power of the Spirit, for this reason I also, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In other words, if God is sovereign and He has ordained it all, and Paul recognizes that the salvation of the Ephesian believers is is part of that sovereign plan of God and he desires that they too understand that, right? Paul starts this way, I want you to understand all that God has for you and all that God has done for you, then why pray for these things? God is sovereign. If God ordains whatsoever shall come to be according to his wisdom for his own glory, then why is the apostle Paul, after telling them all the things that God has done for them, pray in the way that he prays? And furthermore, why does he pray what he says in verses 18 and 19? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Why is Paul praying for these things? In fact, we might even ask, why pray at all? Why pray at all if what is going to take place will take place according to the foreordained plan of God? Why pray at all? That's the question that I have before us tonight as I think about this as we exercise our discernment. Why pray at all? How would you answer that question? God is sovereign, then why pray? As you were sharing at the Raymond Fair, those who were there and sharing the Gospel What would you have said to someone who might ask that question? Well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why pray for people to be saved? Well, the answer to that is rather simple. Nothing can thwart the foreordaining plan of God, right? Nothing can thwart that. So if we're going to pray, I trust you would say this. The answer is rather simple, my friend. The answer to that question is that while God foreordains whatsoever shall come to pass, God also foreordains the means by which it comes to pass. So within His sovereign hand is not only the end, but also the means to that end. Within the sovereign foreordination of God is the sovereign foreordination of the means by which he accomplishes whatever so comes to pass. We understand this to be true just from the scriptures. Verses like faith comes by hearing. That's sovereign foreordination. Faith comes by hearing. That's how God has foreordained for faith to happen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, there is the sovereign means. That is simply to say that no one can be saved without the hearing of the Gospel. It's just as true that those who have been foreordained to salvation have also been foreordained to grow in the exercise of their salvation. So just as it is true that verses 3 through 14 God has granted to us all of this wonderful reality within the salvation that he has foreordained in that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be blameless and holy before him and Jesus Christ he sent so that we would be in fact redeemed our sins would be forgiven that our we would all receive what He has lavished upon us according to the riches of His grace, as verse 7 says. Just as He has sent the Holy Spirit that He might seal us in the reality of our adoption as sons, that we would have a, 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 a... an understanding of our inheritance and in view of the final redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Just all of that within that sovereign foreordination of God is the reality that God has also foreordained the means by which He accomplishes our growth in that. He has foreordained not simply our salvation, but He has also foreordained us to grow in the exercise of that salvation. And so God has foreordained. That we pray for one another. In other words, prayer is the means through which God accomplishes his sovereign foreordination. And so we find here the Apostle Paul thanking God for the Ephesians' faith in Jesus Christ. For this reason, in other words, for the reason that God has foreordained you unto salvation, I thank God when I heard. Of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I I am thank I'm going to God with thankfulness in my heart because God is carrying out His foreordained plan in you, and I've heard of it. Paul understands that it was through God's sovereign foreordination that they have been brought to saving faith. We see all of this in chapter two unfold, really when he says that every Christian is saved by grace through faith. Right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is who you were before in time God showed forth His foreordained plan of saving you. You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive with Christ. Then of course those Verses that we all love to turn to, especially when it's in some evangelistic sharing time. We love to go to verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. And so there is no one genuine Christian who can boast that they got into the family of God because God saw their efforts and chose them because of it. And so we can truly be thankful to God for that, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul certainly is thankful that he's heard of their faith. He tells us that in verse 7, I'm thankful of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you. But he doesn't stop there because notice Paul isn't so spiritually naive about the sovereign hand of God in their life that he stops with just thanking God for His sovereign plan and saving them and showing that saving faith. No, He also gives thanks for their practical faith. Not just their saving faith, but their practical faith. Notice what He says first. Verse 15, Your faith, it exists among you and your love for all the saints. This is faith being lived out. This is faith being lived out. <clears throat> this is important for us to recognize as Christians. Faith without love is not true saving faith. You want to be discerning about Christian faith. You want to be discerning about who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. Not that we go around trying to untie those who say, I'm a Christian, and we sit there with our skeptical eyes and, you know, no, this is a reality about our own life. Listen, does my life reflect this? Is this being lived out in my life? Why? Because faith being lived out is lived out this way. And so it's important for us to recognize faith without love is not saving faith. The men and I were discussing this on Monday night in our Monday night Bible study this last week. Saving faith always produces obedience in the life of the one saved. This is why we say it so often here in this church that you cannot have a Christian who is unchanged. Why? Because faith is placed upon an object. True saving faith is placed upon an object that you believe in. Notice what Paul says I heard, I'm, I, I'm, I'm thankful because I heard of the faith, notice, in the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. He says, I know you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, not because simply I heard of it, but because it's producing in you not just salvation, it's producing in you a practical outworking of that faith. It's producing in you a love for all the saints. Paul says, I heard of your life. Thankful that Salvation has come to you and I know it's genuinely come to you. I'm discerning that in your life why because you have a love for the saints. It's outworking in your life. It's faith being lived out. So genuine real Christian faith those who have what is foreordained in verses 3 through 14 are those who live it out. It shows in their life. Real Christian faith always has an object on which it is based. And it produces Christian love. In fact, that's what the original word faith means. The Greek word for faith is pistis. It means to be persuaded that something is true and trust in it. It's not just, hey, I think that's true in an intellectual sense. No, it's to be persuaded that it's true, and that persuasion moves you to action, to trust in it. So it isn't just intellectual, it certainly is engaging of the mind, it's not mindless. Faith isn't irrational, it is very rational, it is intellectual in the sense that you have to think. It's practical, however, also. It shows itself in obedience to the object upon which it is placed. So Paul says, I have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is among you. And I know it's true because you have a love for all the saints. So Paul says to the Ephesians, you're not simply intellectual about salvation. You're practical. I see your life. The genuineness of your faith is being lived out through your love for others. This is important for us to understand. Genuine Christian faith always has the real Christ as its object. There are many who say they're living by faith, Mormons and others who will say they believe in Jesus Christ, but it's not the same Christ. They say Jesus is God, but they don't say there's one God. They say He's the separate God. He's a different God. Yet we know there is one God in three persons. And so genuine Christian faith always has the genuine real Christ as its object. And that kind of faith will not exist within someone without changing the life of that person who's exercising that faith. One of the outworkings of that faith is love for others. And so for Paul, and I think this ought to be true of us as believers in our own understanding of it, genuine faith... (laughs) Proves itself through the expression of love for others. In fact, just to show you this quickly, you can turn back maybe a page, page and a half in your Bible back to Galatians chapter 5. You remember when we were studying through that. Paul is dealing with the Galatian church and and the legalism that's there in their own understanding of salvation. These ones who had crept into the church and said you don't need to You can believe in Jesus Christ all you want, that's fine, but you need all this other activity in order to be saved. That's threatening them, and he says in chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Right? If Christ is the one who sets you free, then, then don't add something to it, that's the idea. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, if you add that to your to Christ Christ is of no benefit to you and i testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law if you're going to add something from the law to keep it in order to be saved then you're subject to the whole law you better be perfect in the law because it's only through perfection that god accepts anyone and since man cannot be perfect you need Christ and Christ alone you've been severed from Christ he says you you who are seeking to be justified by law you've fallen from grace For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through what? Love. Faith working through love. That doesn't mean love's the object of salvation. It means that faith shows itself in the outworking of love in every person who truly is a believer. So genuine faith is always seen in genuine love for others. We know this. This is not a surprise to us. Jesus, of course, in the Gospels, clearly shows that. He told His disciples in John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35 is the one we highlight from time to time. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You can go around saying you believe in Jesus all you want. But the authentication of that, the reality of that in your life is the fact that you outwork in your life what is seen in your life as a love for one another. A sacrificial offering of yourself on behalf of those whom are part of the family of God. In fact, I'm always intrigued at the Apostle John because he drives that knife of conviction even deeper. If there was any Apostle who gets in your theological, human, practical, outworking kitchen, it's the Apostle John, and he stirs up things. You know, if you were under the water with an air tank and an air hose, John's the one who would come and step on it, so you're gasping for air. And he says this in 1 John 3, verse 10, "...by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious." Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's synonymous. Righteousness and the outworking of love in the Christian is synonymous. You say, well, I'm I'm not sure if I'm living rightly. Well, are you loving the brethren? That's the exercise of righteousness in your life. So Paul says here in Ephesians 1, I'm thankful here's the reason I'm thankful for you, I'm thankful to God for your faith and I'm thankful for your faith because it's seen by the working itself out in love toward all the saints. Now we might have a tendency to think as we think about this, wow these are Christians doing exactly what God has saved them for. This is what Christians are. They are practicing Christian love. That's what they're doing. And so why continue to pray for them then? They're doing what God has saved them for. His foreordaining plan is in motion. They are growing. They are practicing their faith. Let's pray for some other pressing need. Why pray for them? Well, because this side of glory we all must excel still more. Right Sanctification never ends. Sanctification is always a growing process. Praise God that He has saved us. Praise God that the Son has redeemed us. Praise God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that God the Son and God the Father have sent the Spirit and sealed us for the day of redemption to come in that final day when when we will be with Christ, when we will be His own possession in reality as we are or in place in person with Him as we are now. Praise God for that. But we desire for God to complete His foreordained plan as we grow in our knowledge of Him. That's what we hope for. That's what we desire. Notice what Paul says in verse 17. That the God... Of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul says, I'm thankful that you have faith. I've heard of your faith, and I know it's genuine because you have love for one another, but I but I'm not stopping there. I'm going to continue to pray for you. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray so that God might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Notice, so that you might know Him. Know Him. Verses 18 and 19, he prays that their eyes might be enlightened to know, and then he lists three different things. Hope, inheritance, and power. The the whole essence of paul's prayer is that they might know god that they might know god i'm gl- i'm glad god saved you i'm i'm thankful for his His foreordaining plan to work out that you have faith in Him and that that you're actually exercising that faith. But I don't want to stop praying for you. I'm going to continue to go to God. I'm going to continue to entreat God that He would fully expose you in every way to knowing Him. I want you to know God. And by knowing God, you might know these other realities fully. Why? Because when you grasp what is yours, when you fully grasp what is yours as a child of God, you will live for Christ like nobody else. Bottom line, Paul says, I'm praying for your growth. And that growth comes through knowing God. I was thinking about this as we were discussing our discernment question tonight. The reality is there are a lot of people who believe they're discerning, and yet their discernment is taking them in ways that go away from the truth. They've made a scrutinizing call. They've made a judgment. That's what discernment is, making a a scrutinizing judgment about this or that. I mean, we had the example tonight of the radio and, and something was being said, and then this person started going off in a direction. And so your discernment says, well, that's not right. I have to go back this way. Paul is saying, listen, I want your discernment to be so filled up and that way you have it filled up in your mind and heart as you practically live out your Christian faith is by knowing God. By knowing God. It doesn't do you any good to be scrutinizing if you don't know by what you are scrutinizing. You don't have the truth. And I think this is incredible here because one of the ways that the Bible speaks of knowing God is by means of salvation, Right? I mean, that's how salvation is described by Jesus Christ in John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, that Jesus is praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they might know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That's eternal life, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. And we already understand that the Ephesian church knew Jesus Christ. It clearly shows that here. We know they were saved. And so Paul is praying that they might know him better. The word used most in the original language for know is the word gnosis. Gnosis. It most often carries the idea of just general knowledge and intellectual knowledge. General informational knowledge in, in most ways. Facts. no Know God. But when you add the prefix epi" to it, then it becomes epignosis. And that means experiential knowledge, a more uh, a knowledge that, that, is, that is experiential in you, a real, a deep, a thorough knowledge. In fact, we get an example of this difference, if you will, in First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen verse twelve. You know that's the whole chapter, the short chapter on on the definition of love, if you will. And it says, "For we, for we now, or for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, now we know God with this with this shadow almost. We haven't been with Him in His presence in the sense of when we will be glorified. We see dimly, but but." In, in time, when, when we are full in the presence of God, we will see clearly, we'll see face to face. Now I, Paul says, no. Now I gnosis in part. Now I have this intellectual understanding in, in a way in part. Then I shall know fully. I shall epignosis, oh my. I shall epignosis God, even as I have been fully known. The same work. So, Paul says, I right now I, I know about God in part, not the full, full experiential understanding of God. I, I need to grow in that. There's coming a time when I shall fully know that. So, here back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying that they would have that kind of experiential knowledge. Pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you will know. He's saying you you are saved, you're you're loved, and you exercise love for one another. Now, Now excel still more in that. Continue to grow in that. Get to know Christ more. Know His wisdom. Be saturated in His revelation. I want you to experientially know that. Know everything about Christ. Listen, this is the only way we're going to be discerning in this world. The world says, know yourself. That's what the world says. Get out there and know yourself. Which is kind of an irony today, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem like anybody knows themselves. Everybody wants to be something they're not. They think they know what they are. Far too often, sadly, we Christians buy off on that kind of foolish thinking. Not in the sense that we go that direction and we're calling ourselves male when we're female or female when we're male. We're not going that direction, but we spend a lot of time educating ourselves about us. read books about man and man's thinking about man and we draw ideas about man and what's wrong with man from man's ideas about how man is. What we need to know is know our Savior. Know Christ. You know Christ, you'll get a good diagnosis of man. Know what God says about man. Several years ago, British scholar J.I. Packer wrote a book. Some of you have read it. called Knowing God. Right? you probably read that book. Some of you at least. And in it, he spells out what it means, or what he is meaning by that term, knowing God. He says it in three different ways. Here's what he says. One is that knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Personal dealing. In other words, it is a matter of dealing with God as He opens up to you and being dealt with by Him as He takes knowledge of you. That's an interesting way to say it. It's a philosophical way to say it. But what he's trying to say is, listen, in, in knowing God, there's this personal reality. You cannot know God in a group. You have to know God in a personal way. You cannot come to God just as a group and on a group kind of faith you know God. God's dealing with you as an individual. As you get to know Him and His holiness, He is certainly uncovering you. Secondly, he says, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. In other words, one must engage the mind, the will, and the feelings. He goes on to say that is to say that each believer rejoices when God is honored and vindicated, and saddened when God is defamed. And the Christian senses shame when convicted about their own sin. So in knowing God, there is not only a, a personal dealing with God, but in that personal dealing with God, there's a personal involvement in that, in that my mind is engaged intellectually, my will is engaged, and my, my sense of how I deal with my emotions is engaged without that. It's personal involvement with God, whereby when God is glorified, I'm happy, and when God is, is defamed, I, I'm sad in my own heart about that. And the sense of shame when I'm convicted by God in my own sin. So there's personal involvement when it comes to knowing God. And then he says, thirdly, knowing God is a matter of grace. It's a matter of grace. In other words, it's a relationship in which the initiative throughout the entire relationship is with God. What does he mean? He says, since God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited, all claim on His favor by our sins, it has to be of grace. We are rejecters of God, and were it not for His grace, we would have no relationship with God. So knowing God is a matter of God's graciousness to even allow us to have a relationship with Him. And so it's personal dealing, personal involvement, and a matter of grace. Therefore, J.I. Packer concludes this way by saying, that what matters most in my knowing God is knowing that God knows me. What matters most in my knowing God is the reality that the very God who created me and the very God who foreordains all that soever what should ever come to pass knows me and I think that's somewhat, what the Apostle Paul is telling these believers in Ephesus. He says, I pray that you might know Christ. Why? Because Christ knows you. Because Christ knows you. I find that very interesting, that if we are not careful as Christians, we can end up where we find the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation one of the seven churches that the angel of the Lord writes to and indicts them because they forgot their first love. Christ knows you, so you better know him. And So Paul prays for their experiential knowledge of Christ. But he also prays secondly for their experiential knowledge of what he has achieved for them. And we sitting here, it's the same thing. He has achieved the same thing for us who are saved. And he lists three specific realities here. Number one, I pray, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that... That's the purpose. Here's why I'm praying for this. I'm praying so that you will know what is the hope of His calling you. So I'm praying that you would experientially know the hope to which He has called you. I pray that God will illumine your minds to such an extent by knowing Him that you understand the hope to which you have been called. Why? Because our hope has its anchor firmly anchored in the fordination of God's electing power. That took place before the foundation of the world. Paul says, I I want you to have an experiential knowledge of that kind of hope. I often ask myself this very question as I'm dealing with issues in life. Why do I fear so much? Ask yourself that question. Why do I fear so much? The only answer that makes sense is that we do not understand our hope. We do not understand our hope. God foreordained before time, Christ redeemed in time, and the Spirit has sealed us until the future time. And so our hope is the unfading hope of being fully with Christ in His glory. The hope of the glory of God. We have the hope of the glory of God as Romans 5 chapter 2 says. Romans 8.17 says it this way, if children, and you could even say since children, in other words, it's a done reality, since we are children of God, then we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Indeed, if we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In other words, we we're so identified and unified with Jesus Christ that not only are His sufferings ours, but His glorification is ours as well. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears. You ever think of our life here like that? When Christ who is our life appears. When the One whom we are so unified with by the power of God, when He appears, then we also will appear with Him in glory. Absolute fact. Put an exclamation point there. Done deal. Cannot be changed. So listen, there is no greater anchor than that for our hope. That hope is opposite of fear. We are going to stand with Christ on that final day. And we will be with Him and be like Him. Again, I, I turn to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So I pray, Paul says, that you understand your hope you're saved. God's forordination, God's sovereign plan has saved you. That's, that's proven in how you're loving one another. Now, now, I want you to excel still more, and you excel still more by knowing Christ, knowing the hope that you have by being anchored and rooted and linked to Jesus Christ. You have an unwavering hope that He has called you to. And then he says, secondly, I want you to understand the riches of the glory of God of His inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, or verse 18. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Now, we cannot miss. I was telling the disciple group this week that I meet with on Wednesdays, we cannot miss these words as they are laid out by the Apostle Paul. This is not a mistake how they are phrased here. Because what Paul wants us to understand is not our inheritance in Christ. Right? He he tells us of that in the first verses 3-14 through that we have an inheritance with Christ, we're linked with Christ, all that is fine and good. But Paul is not telling us that here. He, He doesn't want us to, he's not reminding us of that inheritance here, but rather that what he's reminding us us of is that as saints, we, we the saints, are the riches of the glory of His inheritance. We are God's inheritance. In other words, we need to understand and we need to fully appreciate the value that God has placed upon us by being unified with Jesus Christ. The purpose for which he has called us to himself, so that we might live according to that high calling, and that flows out of an understanding of the reality that we are the riches of his inheritance. Do you see that? I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, which we are. We are the saints. think about it with me. It is God who owns everything, right? God has foreordained all things to come to pass. He owns it all. He created it all. But we as his children are that which he treasures most. Think about that. We are the glory of his inheritance. I want you to understand what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in you, in the saints. Certainly, the reference here is linking us again with His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no beauty in us without Christ. What He treasures most is us, not because of us inherently by ourselves, but because we are linked with His Son, Because of our union with Christ, which God brought about by his sovereign plan and his foreordaining purposes, has made us worth more to him than anything he's ever created. So, what is it that we fear if we experientially know that we are God's prized treasure? What do we fear? One commentator said it this way, we ought to be delirious with this truth. We ought to be delirious with that. He's right. He's right. We have an immovable anchor of hope and we need to understand that we are God's riches because we are linked with His Son. And there's an assurance in both of those. There's an assurance that I can never be removed from that. And then Paul says, I pray also, thirdly, that you understand, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? I want you to understand, I want you to experience, experientially understand what is the greatness, the surpassing greatness of His power. This is not... Power of some kind of artificial force that we might know in our own minds and think of power in that kind of way. Some like to equate that word here, which is the word we had even this morning for power, dunamis, to some artificial force of power, some explosive kind of power. But it's more the reality of, as I said this morning, God's ability. God's ability. Here, God's ability is according to the Working, the energia is the word, where we get the word energy. It's according to His energy. God's ability is in accordance with His energy. What energy? What energy specifically? God, God has the energy to create with just a word, right? We, we know that. We look around us, but nothing speaks more of the power of God than raising the dead. The instantaneous power of God to create and animate that which is dead is beyond all earthly power. Man thinks he has power to do things, but all man has power to do is destroy. God has power to make alive. So Paul says, I I, I want you to fully grasp what God has done through raising Jesus from the dead. This is what he says. Following that, these are in accordance with the outworking of His strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. We're not getting into all that today, but, but that's the power He's talking about. Resurrection power. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to fully grasp what God has done through, through bringing Christ and, and raising Him from the dead which bears directly on your life now and in the future of His appearing. If Christ was not alive now, then we of all people, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, we of all people are most to be pitied because we believe we have hope in the future, but we don't if Christ isn't alive. That's what Paul is saying. The power of God to to change in a moment a child of the devil into a child of God. That gives practical ability and strength to overcome sin in our own lives. You're not a child of sin. You're a child of the king. You can do what is right. Each and every day, you and I see the resurrection of power at work in us. Oh, certainly, we don't always acknowledge it, but it's there because there is no other power in the universe that can change us like it has. None. It's only through the surpassing greatness of his power that it's possible why Paul uses those words. I want you to understand that surpassing greatness. So Paul says, I'm praying that you will understand all of this. I'm praying that you'll grasp all of this. I pray that you will know Christ better because the more you you know Him, uh, the more intimate you are with Him, the more you will be drawn to Him and become like Him. I pray that you will understand better the hope that you have in Christ, that you are a treasure of God and that His power is on you and you will be with Him in glory. I was thinking about this this week as I was re- thinking about the history of my time here at this church when I arrived 16 years ago. I had one goal. If you would have come up to me and asked me, what's your goal for this church, for the future? I would have just told you one thing. I, I want to just preach Christ because I want us to know Christ. I pray that's been happening in us. We have to spend time with Christ to experientially know Christ. We began tonight talking about discernment. If we're going to be discerning, we better know Christ. We don't want to end up where the church of Ephesus ended up. We want to take what what is said here and, and actually live it out to its fullest extent. They forgot their first love. We don't want to do that. And So I just say to all of us, let's be a people who continually sit at the feet of Jesus so that we might know Jesus like we ought to know Jesus so that we might live for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the exhortation of your word. Thank you for the majesty of your great glory, the wonder of how you work in the hearts of men to to be your children. And then you change them. You you save them and then by your power you change them and exercise in their life of love for one another is a reflection of that change. We see that in the lives of one another here and we, we rejoice in that. But Lord, we don't want to just be content in that. We want to grow still more. So help us know Christ. Help us be settled in the hope of our calling in Christ. Help us know the reality of how You value us because of our attachment with Jesus Christ, all of which You have accomplished by Your foreordaining plan. And help us, Lord, live that out in this place that others might see Christ in us. They might come to know Christ and glorify You as we desire You to be glorified in us. We'll accomplish all of that, Lord, by your means of mercy and grace so that you would receive exactly why you have done it all, the glory that you deserve. So we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.